Hey, if you would, I want to invite you to go ahead and grab whatever copy of the scriptures you have. Uh, and whether it's an app on your phone or it's a good old-fashioned paper Bible like this one, uh, and open up with me to the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. While you turn there, uh, a couple weeks ago, one of our sister churches held the grand opening of their permanent facility in Blaine, Renovation Church, and uh, after being in an elementary school for over 12 years, they finally moved into their permanent facility, and I had lunch with this pastor uh, last week, uh, or actually last month. Well, I, I did have it last week, but last month when I got together him to talk about this, um, he told me that since their grand opening, they have had 21 people make commitments to faith in Jesus for the first time. And I love what Pastor David does at Renovation Church because he actually asked them, like, hey, uh, there's a difference between recommitting your life and committing your life for the first time. So he actually, he tracks that. So he's, he's actually really analytical. He's really good at that. He encourages me to be more uh, analytical and strategic with that kind of stuff. But anyways, 21 people since their grand opening. They've only been, I think, open for like four weeks. So that's awesome. Isn't that mind-blowing? 21 people come to faith in Jesus. I don't know... Uh, uh, what kind of culture I've created here, but the fact that you guys aren't like going, amen, just really disappoints me. But like 21 people came to faith in Jesus, right? First time. Yes, that's great. And you know what? You want to hear an even more mind-blowing fact? Do you know how much time passed from the moment they, in their hearts, decided, hey, we're going to pursue finding permanent facility for us and the day that they actually moved into permanent facility, do you know how much time passed? Yes. This will be fun, huh? No. No. Higher. One more. Seven years. Seven years. Seven years from the moment that they said, you know what, I think God wants us to pursue this. A couple of years ago, one of the pastors who planted us, uh, Grace Fellowship, Pastor Dave Reno, he started that church. Um, now, since retired, a couple of years ago, he had sat me down. Maybe it's even four years ago now. I think it was four years ago. He had sat down with me and uh, over lunch, and he apologized. It was funny because when I think about this scenario, it's actually very. Now, funny is not the right word, but that's the only one I can think of right now. <laughs> he started by saying, I'm sorry, Phil, that I didn't ask you this sooner. And I'm like, oh, what, what are you talking about? And he goes, he, he asked me, he said, when are you going to start a capital campaign to find a permanent facility for your church? And to which I replied to him, I said, Dave, <laughs> we're a missional church. We don't need no stinking building. <laughs> we don't need a building right now. And uh, Pastor Dave looked at me and smiled at me in a way that only someone who's older and wiser smiles at someone who thinks they know everything but really doesn't and asked me, do you know what all thriving churches who live past the tenure of their founding pastor have? I didn't have to answer the question. Pastor Dave could see it in my eyes that I got the point. 
He then said something to me that I have heard over and over again. Remember, this was four years ago. So I admit to you that I actually didn't believe him when he first said this, which is why four years from now we're now doing what we're doing. But as I begin to ask other pastors and do the homework and the pray and to consider, like, what would it mean for Clarity Church to be a thriving community of faith, not just now, but for generations to come? I heard over and over again from other pastors who planted churches that are thriving and are reaching people for Jesus. And I remember what Pastor Dave said to me next. He said, the question is not whether or not you feel like Clarity needs a permanent facility now. It's whether or not you believe that in five to ten years, Clarity should have a more permanent facility. In the coming weeks, we'll be talking more practically about why coming together to pursue a more permanent home for us is not only important, but it is actually a vital part of being a church in a community that makes a gospel difference in the lives of those in a community. Let me just say that again. In the next coming weeks, we're definitely going to be talk about the pra- talking about the practical reasons why it's, it's it, vital to a church being effective, having a gospel difference in a community, being a community, place is important. But before we talk about all of that, I believe with all my heart that we needed to engage with each other spiritually before we tried to engage practically. And so we started this series, not so much a series about prayer, but a series about praying so that we would, like the early church, pray with boldness. After week one, for those of you here, you remember I encourage you to sign up to receive our prayer guide or have daily emails or texts sent to you. The whole text thing isn't kind of working. Some of you probably got texts like literally at 11.59, and I apologize. But (laughs) either way, uh, these were going to go out to help guide you each day and together begin praying bold prayers about the future of our church. And here, listen, many of you have been praying. Many of you have been praying. And to remind those, uh, again, that were with us a few weeks ago, you'll remember that as we talked about what it looks like to pray with boldness like the early church, um, and if you, if you weren't here a couple weeks ago and you, and you watched the podcast, um, you'll, you'll be missing something that happened because I edited it out, mostly just because it was very personal. But those of you who remember, through my ugly tears... Snot running down my face. I confess that the real burden on my heart wasn't really the idea of a building. The burden on my heart was that we would re-embrace, re-embrace learning what it means to be a church that exists so strangers could become friends, friends could become family, and that family could be missionary servants sent in the world. That's what I said a couple weeks ago, if you remember. And I talked about all that. But I remember I said, living like this requires bold prayers for bold living. It requires bold prayers for bold living to say that we want to extend friendship to those who are strangers to us and strangers to God. That's just weird. In a generation that we live in right now where evangelism, according to the recent studies, is almost a negative value in the construct of our ethos 
it's weird, this idea that like we would be passionate about helping people who don't want to follow Jesus and engage them in a way so that they become not only friends to us, but that they would become friends of God. Sometimes we refer to strangers to God as disconnected from God. It requires bold prayers for bold living to say we will invest in the discipleship of the people God has already given us. Remember, this is what I mostly lost it in week one. I talked about our need to recapture the importance of actually discipling the people God has given us, our children. And I confessed some of the mistakes that I made, if you remember. And I basically drew a line in the sand and I said, hey, we can't be this kind of church anymore. If you remember week one, I said, we have to be a place where children and youth are reached with the gospel, that they too can be invited, even though they feel like strangers, to feel like friends so they can feel like family. Remember that after week one. But most of all, I believe it requires bold prayers for bold living to help all of us who have been slowly becoming more and more disconnected from each other. Remember I said this in week one? Whether it's because of the realities of COVID or a tendency to lean into introversion in unhealthy ways or our pursuit of selfishness hidden behind an unhealthy pursuit in the name of simplicity or minimalism or in the name of self-health, it requires bold prayers for the kind of bold steps we need to take so that we can be friends again. And if you remember, I said, you know, like Steve from Blue's Clues, I, I asked, hey, hey could, could we figure out what it looks like for us to be friends again? Because I think we lost that. And as I said, Emphatically as I could, if we ever hope to have clarity feel like family, we need to be friends again. Right? You remember that? While in week one we looked at how the early church prayed, last week we looked at the passage of Scripture where Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. And what we saw Jesus teach his disciples is something that living in, <laughs> in uh, kind of this instant gratification culture that we have right now, you know, like, you know, microwave generation, it makes it very difficult to embrace what Jesus taught, which is what? Persistency in prayer. Persistency in prayer. This is because moving the heart of God, and more importantly, the aligning and changing of our hearts to be more like God's requires a life of persistent prayer. The hope is that uh, these 21 days of prayer would make it easy for you, easy for me, to begin building a life of persistent prayer with each other with a purpose in mind and a hope in our hearts that God would do the work of growing His church. Remember, He started this and He will grow it. And that we would find ourselves aligning our rhythms and our purposes to be a part of God's desire to accomplish His mission in the world. And do not be mistaken, God is accomplishing his mission in the world. He is looking for a church, a people who are willing to come alongside what he's already doing. And let me just say again, listen, I am excited about how God is moving in your hearts 
Over the last couple of weeks, I've had more emails and conversations with people. I'm, I'm telling you, it's been exciting because I have had more people email me, call me, talk to me about what they feel God is doing in this church, doing in their hearts regarding this church than literally, I think, in the past eight years combined. And I'm excited because I feel like for once, we as a church, and I'm not indicting a past season of our church, okay? That's not what this is about. But in the past years, I've been super passionate about our church, but sometimes I feel like I'm the only one. And I just want to let you know, I'm so excited. I'm so thankful for each and every one of you who've been reaching out during this time saying, hey, this is what I think God wants for our church because it's happening. And I am honored that God by his spirit is beginning to work in each of your hearts because to me, I feel like something real is happening. And if you don't know it, I want to let you know, I think God has something great in store for us. I mean that with all my heart. I believe that God, by his spirit, is beginning to place a passion in our hearts to be the church and not just attend church. And before we jump into today's message, if you've given me the honor of being your pastor and you believe that God has called you to this community of faith called Clarity, I want you to know that I am excited to see what God will do, not only in my life, I'll just be honest, but I'm excited what God will do in your life as we together seek to increasingly learn what it means to repurpose our rhythms so that those disconnected from God can experience the gospel of Jesus with clarity. So I'm super excited about that. So anyways, that was all of a side. Are you guys ready? John chapter 17. I want to look at the scriptures today. Is that okay? Hopefully that's okay with you. You have no choice. Are you there? Okay, for those of you who may not be really into the Bible, or maybe it's been a really long time since you've read the book of John, what you need to know before we read our passage of Scripture, capturing Jesus in the middle of his own prayers to God the Father, that's what we're going to be looking at today, is this. In John 15 and 16, we find some of what I believe are the most powerful teachings of Jesus. You should really go ahead and read that if you've never read it, or maybe it's been a while. It's really, really interesting. In fact, if I get to a point where I'm really super boring and you just want to go ahead and read that, I'm not going to be offended. Okay, Jesus is a way better preacher than me anyways, so go ahead and read that. Because there's really some radical stuff there, by the way. If we could figure out, in fact, if we could figure out how to apply a tenth of what Jesus teaches in John 15 and 16, I, I, don't, I think not only would it change our lives, but it, it, would, it has the potential to change the lives of everyone within our circles of influence. So I can't speak enough about John 15 and 16. Jesus lays down some awesome smack, and this is really good. You should read it. And this makes sense that Jesus' teachings would start getting intense because why? These were the moments leading up to his betrayal and eventually his torture, his crucifixion, and his death. Be reminded, Jesus was also fully man. He knew what was about to come. And I think if you knew that your impeding death and crucifixion and torture was going to come, I bet you would use your last words with intensity and immense clarity, just like Jesus did. So anyways, read 15 and 16. John 17, though, 
allows us to witness Jesus engaging in what many Bible scholars believe is one of the most significant prayers of Jesus recorded in Scripture. In fact, it's actually the longest prayer recorded in Scripture. If longer means better, I don't know, but I'm going to go with what the Bible scholars say. I don't have any letters before or after my name regarding biblical scholarship. And so after praying for himself and his disciples, Jesus goes on to pray for all believers in the passage we will be looking at today. And that's where I want us to look. John chapter 17, verses 20 to 23. It says this. I pray not only for these, these being his disciples, okay, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Who is that? That's you. That's me. Who through their word believe in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? That's you then. Did you know Jesus prayed for you? May they all be if you're a circle highlighter, underliner, circle highlight this word, one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. Mm. There's this tie between unity and the world knowing that Jesus is real. Verse 22, I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be, circle, highlight, underline, what? One, as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be completely, so that they may be made completely, circle, highlight, underline, what? One. That the world may know you have sent me. He says it again. Jesus, you're <laughs> Jesus, why would you pray that more than once? I don't know, that gives me a lot of hope. Sometimes when I sit in prayer, I definitely know I ask the same thing twice. And it's okay. Jesus did too. He asked the Father, make them one so that the world would know. What? He says, you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. You know, as individualistic as we'd like to manage, uh, as, as we'd like to imagine ourselves to be, there is an unavoidable reality that we impact one another. That one person's activity can impact another person's life. This is why Jesus prays that we would be one, because Jesus understood probably more than anyone, listen, that when God is up to doing something great within a community of faith, there will always arise opportunities for disunity. Now, before we go any further, I, I just want to, some of you are going, I've heard this message before, haven't I, Phil? Yes, this was the last message of our 21 days of prayer that we had a year ago. We need to hear it again. So this is not being, this is not being bred by anything that is happening because of COVID and the realities of our world. Just so you know, like this is a message God put on my heart for us. 
before <laughs> the world imploded. <laughs> it's still true, isn't it? Yes. Even more than ever. Because when God is up to doing something great within a community of faith, there will always arise opportunity for disunity. When Jesus called people to follow him, there were those who said things like, Jesus, <laughs> the carpenter? <laughs> From Nazareth? <laughs> what good can come out of Nazareth? Remember that? Remember that? When Jesus began washing his disciples' feet, like, like, like we, we think of like the, 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 the perfect vision of humility. Why is washing, washing feet a lesson in how we are to treat one another? What happens? Peter says, no, Jesus. And then Jesus looks at him and goes, if I don't wash your feet, you can't have a part of me. To which Peter, idiot, still doesn't get the point, goes, Fine. Wash all of me then. Oh, right? Soon after, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations and the Holy Spirit comes on them with power and thousands of people will come to faith in Jesus. But it wasn't a year before an argument. It wasn't a year that had gone by. <laughs> that an argument between conservative and liberal Jews broke out about who is being played the favorite in the passing out of food to widows? If you didn't know this, there was a subsection of people that felt like, well, you know, like we're, we're all, we're, we're getting treated not fairly. And that's, with the passing out of food, we're, we're, they're, they're not thinking of us rightly and we're, we're getting mistreated. And so in a letter to the churches in uh, Corinth, and, and uh, Paul writes this in, in another scenario. So, so we have, the, we have this, Seeds of disunity, right? The, the point is I'm trying to make is in any movement where God is doing great things, there is opportunity for seeds of disunity to be sown. Why? Because the history of the church proves this, that this is what happens. Now, is the church still here? Is God still great? Is he still changing lives? Okay, so the point is this. Because of the presence of the threat of disunity does not mean in any way that, the, that God's mission is being threatened in any way, okay? Just, just want to let you know that. But one more example, I just think this is a great one. In the churches, to the, uh, in, the churches in around the city of Corinth, Paul writes this. You might remember this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I always thank God for you and for the gracious gifts he's given you now that you belong to Christ Jesus. Through him, God has enriched your church in every way with all your eloquent words and all your knowledge. This confirms that what I told you about Christ is true. Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you strong to the end so that you'll be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will do this. He is faithful to do what he says and he has invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ the Lord. Now, that sounds like an awesome thing that's happening in an awesome church, doesn't it? Like, would you love to have an apostle go, you have every spiritual gift. God has enriched you. It, everything that has happened confirms that what Jesus is true, and now you'll blah, blah. Doesn't this sound like an awesome church? Don't you want to be a part of that church? Yeah. Until you read the next verses. <laughs> Verse 10, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our lead, Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other, 
Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For some members, just in case you were, just in case you were unclear, you were thinking that Paul was encouraging them to continue to be unified. Paul goes ahead and calls them out and says, for some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels. (laughs) Oops. My dear brothers and sisters. When God is up to doing something great within a community of faith, there will always rise opportunities for disunity. Always. Always. And as we move forward with more and more details about what it looks like to begin planning for a future permanent facility in the coming months, I can almost guarantee, I can, <laughs> sounds conceited, but listen, I can almost guarantee that there will be opportunities for seeds of disunity to be sown. And the need to pray for and be committed to unity as a church has never been more critical in our history than now. And we don't need to pray for unity because of the possibility of disunity. We need to pray for unity because where there is unity, there is God's blessing. Psalms tells us this in 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the dew of Hermon. You know the dew of Hermon, right? I don't know what it is either, but it's probably really awesome. That's why he mentions it, okay? Which falls in the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Here's a principle. Where brothers and sisters in Christ choose to live in unity, God commands blessing. Remember our passage from week one where the people were united in prayer after Peter and John had been released from prison for refusing to uh, not obey the leaders who were saying, don't preach the good news about Jesus, remember, remember? It was their unity that brought the power of God. Remember they came together and what did they do? They what? Prayed. And then what happened after they prayed? What happened? The walls shook. It was through the unity of God's people that God commanded his blessing and the poor and the sick ended up being cared for it as we look at what happened as a result of all this, and the lame were made to walk, and the blind were made to see. It was through the unity of God's people that commanded God's blessing, and the world was turned upside down. Unity is what has, what does, and what will set the stage for God's power, God's blessing, and God's authority to become a reality in our lives. This is why Jesus prayed as we read May they be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. That's a real good prayer, isn't it? If we're to be a church through which God accomplishes his mission in the world to make disciples that make disciples, (laughs) then we have to be a church praying for and committed to unity. But here's the thing about unity— Every one of us either works to contribute to unity or contaminate unity. Every one of us contributes or contaminates. This is because unity requires work 
work. And what is that work? Well, Matthew records how Jesus best describes what kind of work every follower of Christ should be dedicated to. Matthew 6.33, many of you know, but in 31 to 33, Jesus sets the stage and he says this, don't worry about the don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. It's okay. You want to find, you want to seek things to provide for your everyday needs. It's okay if you want to f- seek after finding, you know, emotional health and, 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 and mental health and all this. That's good. That's great. But are you seeking, like the things you need, that's great. But are you seeking above all else? This is, the, this is what Jesus is saying. And it, it requires work because seeking is, an, is a verb, right? Seek, seek. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. And he will give you everything you need. In his widely heralded commentary, the book of Matthew, Dr. R.T. France writes this about this verse. He says, in that case, the idea of seeking God's kingship, his authority, his kingdom is best understood as another way of saying the same thing, resolving to live under God's direction and control. God's kingship means God's people live under God's rule. Now, that's very anti-American. Sounds very anti-freedom. We don't live our lives as citizens of this world, do we? So for to be a unified church, we need to be a people who give up their rights. They give up their rights to be the master. Give up their rights to choose what's best for themselves. Give up their rights of what they think is the best thing for themselves. And Give up their rights to be the ruler of their own life and choose to, resolve to, live under God's direction and control. We need to be that kind of people. We need to be the kind of people who understands what the writer of Proverbs wrote when he said in Proverbs 69, a person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. Practically speaking, we will be tempted along the way to insert our own opinions and biases. But at the end of the day, we have to ask, is the Lord moving us toward accomplishing his mission? Or are we simply seeking our own kingdom? So what does unity require? This is where I get to my three points. (laughs) First, Unity requires us to continually seek after God's kingdom. That's what Jesus said. But that's not the only thing unity requires for it to be real. Unity also requires us to grow in affection for one another. Affection. Here are just a couple of verses that prove this. Romans 12, 9 through 10. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. And then he says this. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters outdo one another in showing honor. 1 Peter 3.8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. In other words, unity requires a commitment to know 
and be known. To care for and what? Be cared for. Question. How have you grown in your commitment to know and be known by the people God has brought into your life as your church family? How have you grown? There's ideals, I get it. But how this year have you grown in comparison to last year regarding knowing and being known? How have you grown? How have I grown? That's a good question for me. How have you grown in showing care and allowing yourself to be cared for by the church God has called you to? You know, I wrote, again, I'm just admitting here, I wrote these words over a year ago. <laughs> like, I'm just telling you right now, this is not a new message. But even as I read this right now, there's something serendipitous about the time we were living in. And I'm thankful that God put it on my heart to share this. And so this isn't really a first time reminding us as a church. This is a first time telling you. This is a reminder of what the Holy Spirit was trying to tell us. And if maybe it was, maybe you already got this, but I'm hearing this for the first time. Again, have you grown in sharing care and allowing yourself to be cared for by the church God has called you to? After week one, a lot of you came up to me, and I appreciate it, because you, you saw me crying and snot running. And, and, and after that, you know, as, as you know, in my commitment for kind of this new season of our church, I'm trying to figure out, like, what does it mean, even for me, to allow myself to be cared for more by you, the church? And I hope you would do the same to your other brothers and sisters in Christ. Because if we want unity, unity requires us to grow in affection for one another. Unity requires us to continually seek after God's kingdom. Unity requires us to grow in affection for one another. But last but not least, unity requires us to be committed to bearing with and forgiving one another. This is actually the most important part. This has to do with how do we fight against disunity. Colossians 3 tells us this, since God chose you to be holy people he loves, since God has chose you to be holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Make allowances, make allowances, make allowances, make allowances for each other's faults. Forgive anyone who offends you. Forgive anyone, if I would put it in maybe modern day terms, forgive anyone who annoys you too, Okay. Remember, the Lord forgave you, <laughs> so you must forgive others. That's a high call. That's a God card right there. Paul throws in there. I'm like, oh, Paul, I want to disagree with you. But then you said, God forgave me. Oh, well. Verse 14, above all, clothe yourselves with love, which bind us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts, for as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. He knew that the greatest enemy of disunity 
is not actually hate, but sometimes it's a lack of gratitude for what we already have, desiring for the thing that we think we should get without recognizing what God has already provided. In a wonderful article written for what is known as uh, The Witness, a black Christian collective, a little blog that I follow, a seminary professor and teaching pastor, Dr. Jarvis William, explains the importance of unity in his really great article, but more importantly, he touches on the effects of disunity in and among a community of faith. This is what he says. Often Christians wonder why certain people refuse to trust in Jesus by faith. There are all sorts of complicated answers to that question, but one answer is because of the disunity within the church. To clarify, disunity in the church does not excuse unbelievers from God's judgment if they refuse to follow Jesus. However, disunity in the church is a reason that some people are pushed away from the Christian faith. When churches fight, bicker, and divide, they provide no incentives for unbelievers to come to faith in Jesus. I have never led a church through a capital campaign. Never. Never done that. Never done it. But listen, I have been part of many churches that have gone through capital campaigns. The church I grew in, I lived through two of them. I watched as it almost tore the church I grew up in apart. In several churches that I worked in, we engaged in capital campaigns. And listen, here, so I've been part of churches where as a member and as a staff member, and here's what I know what happens in the middle of these things. Inevitably, someone will speak their mind about what they think the church should be doing, and consequently, some people will get offended in the process. Someone will confuse their opinions and feelings with truth and wonder why no one else sees things their way. Others will hear things communicated as truth and then discredit them. Well, that's just opinions and feelings. And eventually, someone will lose patience, get offended, or at the minimum, get annoyed. Someone will try to power up and use their experience, age, position, or influence to push their agenda. They might take an associate pastor who's 20 or 30 nothing and tell him that he doesn't know what he's talking about as he demands his resignation. Okay, wait, that was me. Uh, uh, So, right? Someone might use their power. Others will retreat. Others will retreat into the shadows, not wanting to engage in any kind of conflict, even if it's healthy conflict. And when that happens, there will be a temptation to respond to these kinds of people and judge them for not really wanting to be a part of this season, this next season of Clarity's story. There will be a temptation for some people to look at people who back away during this time and go, oh, well, now we really see who really is a part of Clarity and who isn't. And there will be there will begin to arise from the seeds of disunity, I guarantee you, a sense of classism, a divide between those who are really with us and those who are just along for the ride. I know this because even I am tempted to classify people. Can I be honest? There are times where I I look, I go through the list of the people in our church, and I'm like, they're with us, they're with us. I don't know. They're just a lot. I'm just being honest with you. And that 
is the seeds of disunity. That does not come from the Lord. And some will accuse us of chasing after brick and mortar, while others will push too hard to make what is a passion God has placed in their heart to see us take next steps of faith. But if we want God to accomplish his mission through us, we must remember that unity requires us to be committed to bearing with and forgiving one another. Bearing with, forgiving. What each one of us does to contribute has a profound impact to the experience people have with this local church. What each one of us does, small or little, has a profound impact. Paul said it this way, we are all members of the body. And there is not one that is more important than the other. The decisions you make and the actions you take affect the church you're a part of. And because we know God uses His church to influence a community with the gospel, how we live either in unity or disunity affects, listen, how a community, a city, a region, it affects how everyone within our spheres of influence interprets. This is the big thing. It affects how they interpret who Jesus is. 